What an eternal, joyful truth to proclaim in song. Christ is mine forevermore. What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. Not because of who we are, but all because of who Christ is, because of his work that has been accomplished on our behalf. I'd like to extend an invitation, a welcome to you as well from Pastor Travis. Thank you for joining us today. We're grateful for your being with us today. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter, excuse me, woo, Romans chapter 11. I'm in the right section, Romans 9 through 11. Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Last time we were in Romans together, we reflected on Resurrection Sunday on a resurrection in the book of Romans. And as we come back now to our trek through the book of Romans, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Chapter 7, beginning here in verse 10. Here in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, and perhaps even down through verses 11 and 12, Paul moves on from the premise that God is preserving a faithful remnant from among, the, from among national Israel, which he argued in verses 5 and 6. Uh, go back to chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and look what he says there. God is preserving a remnant among national Israel. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God is preserving a faithful remnant among national Israel. And then notice what he concludes here in verse 7. What then, verse 7, that God has only hardened the part of national Israel who are, who are in their idolatry continuing to work toward a salvation that is obtained by works and not of salvation that is obtained by faith. They think that they must continue to faithfully observe the Torah, if you will, as a means of grace. And Paul is arguing in this text that it is those who have rejected God's means of salvation through the person of Christ it is those for whom God has hardened. And since God hardens only as a judgment, this is the testimony that he pulled from chapter 9 as we looked at Pharaoh. Pharaoh's hard, heart was hardened as a judgment. And from this text, a judgment toward unbelieving Jews. Paul is arguing here in chapter 11 that there is a judgment of hardening that is taking place among unbelieving Jews. But yet we also know from Romans chapter 11 that Paul is not saying that this hardening is a hardening that lasts forever, for there is incredible hope. Chapter 11, verses 23 through 25, and this salvation among national Israel this hardening does not amount to a forever rejection on behalf of God. What has Paul been doing all the way from chapter 9, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10? From chapter 9, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 21, 
Paul is arguing, or has argued, that God is judging unbelieving Israel. Why? Notice chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they, that is, national Israel, did not pursue God by faith. They pursued God as it were. Notice what he says here at the end of chapter 9, verse 32. By works. They have not rightly pursued a relationship with God by faith. They have done it by works. Hence, they stand under God's condemnation, under God's judgment. But notice what Paul does here beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. We've already seen this. The question that is proposed in response here in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 Ask whether that situation can be defined as God's rejection of national Israel. Can we conclude from Romans chapter 9, verse 14, down through Romans chapter 10, verse 21, that Israel has rejected God, and that rejection is a communication ultimately that God is rejecting national Israel to an extent that national Israel does not have a hope. Well, notice what he says in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? How does he answer? He answers with the strongest negation available to him in the Greek New Testament, Absolutely not. Or if you're reading from the King James this morning, God forbid. Israel's rejection of God is not an indication of God's rejection completely of national Israel. In verse 7, from which we start our text today, Paul's answer is that his answer remains unchanged. As he began to argue in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, so too he now is going to argue here in verse 7. Paul hasn't changed his mind. Paul hasn't changed his mind because God has not changed his mind. Paul hasn't changed his mind because Christ has not changed the way in which salvation is obtained or, or, or secured for those who by faith trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, here in verses 7 through 10, and perhaps all the way down through verse 11 and 12, is affirming that his earlier evaluation from chapter 9, verse 3, down through chapter 10, verse 4, is indeed the same. Israel's problem remains that Israel 
has rejected God's sole source of righteousness by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so too, friends, it is the same for you and me. Paul would ask the question, is there condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but friend, there is incredible condemnation. There is intense judgment poured out against those who do not believe. And if you're here today, and you have rejected God's messenger through the person of Christ. This text is not a means of rejoicing for you. It is a means of sober reflection and a passionate plea that you might trust in Jesus. This is Paul's passion for the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 Verses 1 through 5, Paul speaks of the anguish that grips his heart because of Israel's rejection of Christ. He even indicates that if there's a way in which he could change positions with them so that they might rightly believe and have faith and trust in Christ, he would do it. And so too here in this text, Paul continues to point to the problem for national Israel, and that problem does not lie at the feet of God. It lies exclusively in the hands of national Israel. Why? Chapter 10, because God has done all that is necessary to obtain the salvation of any person. How? By sending forth his son, Jesus Christ, and by preaching the gospel of Christ by those who have believed. So what has happened to national Israel? What is national Israel's problem? This is the question that Paul raises here in chapter 11, verse 7. Notice how he begins here. What then? What has happened to Israel? What seems to be the problem for these ancient people of God? Paul answers this question in three ways in our text this morning, here in verses, in verse 7 primarily. And then beginning here in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul does what he has done, what has been his modus operandi through our trach of Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul, like any good theologian, proves his case by reaching back to the text of Scripture. It serves as a reminder for you and me that if we want to make a point concerning theology, our point must be grounded in the text of Scripture. And Paul reaches back as an Old Testament theologian or as a theologian, and he proves his point using the word of God. What has happened to national Israel? Notice what Paul says first here in chapter 11, verse 7. What Israel sought, it has not obtained. 
what Israel sought, it has not, it did not obtain. Notice what he says here in verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was strongly seeking. Israel failed to obtain what she ultimately desired. Paul is not negating that the problem for national Israel is they just don't have the right desire. He's not even arguing that they have the wrong focus of of rightly knowing who God is. In fact, Paul has already argued for us that the problem is not that they don't understand. Go back to chapter 10. And notice in verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Paul is going to argue from a quote from Deuteronomy here in chapter 10, verse 19, that it's not a problem of understanding for national Israel. They've heard. They understand. Now he's saying to us, they don't lack passion. They desire to know God. But what's the problem? They have not obtained that which they so strongly desire. Why? Because God has rejected them? No. They have not obtained it because they are seeking a right relationship with God through a wrong means. It serves to remind you and me today, friend, that a similar problem exists. No one can have a right relationship with God apart from faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter what you might sincerely desire. It doesn't even matter the purity of your motives. Wrong motives or right motives pursued through the wrong means ends with eternal judgment and separation from a holy, loving, righteous God. What is Israel's problem? They've not obtained a right relationship with God that they eagerly pursued. Now notice what Paul says here beginning in chapter 7, verse 7, at the end of verse 7. What has happened with Israel? Number one, what Israel sought it did not obtain. Notice the second point Paul argues. The chosen, the elect, however, they have obtained it. Chapter 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was strongly seeking. The elect, however, have obtained it. Who are these elect? Well, Paul has already mentioned them in a number of different ways. Go back up here in chapter 11, verse 5. This elect are the remnant. This remnant that has existed among national Israel. Chapter 11, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Look what he says in verse 4. That's where I should have started. Chapter 11, verse 4. But what God is, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself seven 
thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Who are these elect in chapter 7? They're the same people that Paul spoke of in chapter 11, verse 1. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? For by no means, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that in this passage of Scripture, Paul is exclusively talking about Israel's relationship to God. He's not actually talking about our relationship with God, the Gentiles. He's exclusively arguing for a certain position as it relates to why the majority of uh, current Israel are not walking in a right relationship with God. He refers to this remnant here in chapter 7 as, as the, elect, the elect have obtained it. Why have these remnant, why has this portion of Israel obtained salvation? For the same reason why non-believing Gentiles who became believing Gentiles have obtained righteousness. Paul makes a point in chapter 9, verse 30 again, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. They have secured it. They have gotten it. How have they gotten it? They have gotten that righteousness by faith, by following rightly the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. The remnant, this remnant of Israel, who by faith have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand in their chosenness, stand in their election, if you will, by faith, by trusting in God's right means of a right relationship with God. So too, Paul will argue next week as we look in chapter 11, verses 13, 14, 15, down to 16, so too have the Gentiles who by faith have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They too have obtained it. Why? There is only one means of a right relationship with God regardless of who you are this morning. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your religious upbringing or the lack thereof. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what country you've been born in. It doesn't matter what church you've been participating in. We are all on equal ground as sinners and as saved. Every one of us are a sinner separated from God and the only way for anybody to have a right relationship with Christ is to obtain it by faith. What's the problem with national Israel? Israel as a whole have not attained it. However, there is a remnant that has obtained it. But notice what he says here in the end of verse 7. And following this last statement in verse 7, he's going to spend verses 8, 9, and 10 arguing for his point that he makes here at the end 
of verse number seven. The obstinate have rejected. Look what he says. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect have obtained it. But the rest, they were hardened. The rest have been hardened just like Pharaoh that Paul has already argued for back in chapter 9. Why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because Pharaoh himself ultimately rejected what God's ultimate will was for the nation of Israel, not only for the nation of Israel, also for the Egyptians, that Israel and the Egyptians would themselves rightly walk with God. Why have they rejected it? Why has this segment of national Israel rejected the person of Christ? Because they've misunderstood God's revelation, both his written revelation and his revelation through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. See, friend, for every person, regardless of Jew or Gentile, who rejects God's messenger of Christ, you too, at this very moment, stand under judgment, stand under God's hardening. But is that judgment the last judgment to be written against your life? If you stand hardened by God today, as national Israel hardened by God during this period of time, does it mean that there's absolutely no hope for national Israel? Notice what Paul will argue in chapter 11, beginning in verse 22. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For those who have been hardened, that is, those Israelites who have been hardened by God, are they completely, totally without hope? No. Why? Because as Paul would argue, flowing out of God's kindness and His patience is a desire for your repentance and my repentance National Israel's repentance, the repentance of your neighbor, and the repentance of your coworker. What is Israel's problem? In large, they did not attain a righteousness by faith. By God's grace, there is an elect among them who by faith have trusted in Christ. For those who have not trusted in Christ, that is national Israel, they stand under God's judgment. Now notice what Paul does next. He reaches back to the Old Testament for us to Deuteronomy, and then again in the Psalms to prove the point that he's just made that national Israel stands under the judgment of God. First, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Let me encourage you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
Deuteronomy chapter 29 occurs obviously at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, it's uh, one of Moses' last statements to to the nation of Israel. And if you want to know what preaching looked like in the Old Testament, we'll read Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's a fantastic sermon by brother Moses to the nation of Israel. What is he showing? What is he arguing for here in Deuteronomy chapter 29? He's arguing that God has responded, God has reacted to Israel's unbelief. We've already seen from the narrative in Exodus, you remember the narrative in, in Exodus, where Moses is, up meeting with, Moses is up meeting with the Lord, and while he's having his meeting with the Lord, what is national Israel doing? They're ultimately rejecting God. How? They're, they're worshiping an idol. They've constructed for themselves an idol. So we come to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and here in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses is going to renew this covenant promise with the, nation, with the nation of Israel, the same covenant promise that took place with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, there's a lot of history that has taken place with Israel between Exodus and Deuteronomy. Would you not agree? Or at least Deuteronomy chapter 29. We've already seen the example of Exodus chapter 32 of how national Israel has had this relationship of obedience and failure, obedience and failure. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses is ultimately reissuing on behalf of God this covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai. And notice how Moses reflects upon God's relationship with national Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter 29. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. What happens to those among national Israel who reject God's means of covenantal faithfulness? If you reject God's means of covenantal faithfulness, God will indeed reject you. This is what's taking place in Paul's day with national Israel. Israel's problem has not changed from Exodus and Deuteronomy to Paul's day to our day. What is the problem? They have rejected God's means of covenantal faithfulness. In fact, look over just real quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 What does Israel desperately need? They need repentance and forgiveness. How do they obtain it? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. To whom is Moses speaking in Deuteronomy chapter 30? He's speaking in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to the same people he just spoke to in Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
The same people who have rejected God. And friends, Deuteronomy chapter 30 reminds us that God is still working in the same way. Unless the Lord works, unless the Lord wills, we are still dead in our trespasses and our sins. But thanks be to God, God has done all that is necessary to obtain the salvation of humanity by sending forth his son, Jesus Christ. God has done that work to which he has spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. God has worked on our behalf. God has worked on your behalf. God has worked on behalf of all of humanity. Friend, hear the mercy of God communicated in this text. Hear the passionate plea of a patient God calling you and me to repentance. Paul reaches back to a time in Israel's past in which they have rejected God to remind them that they are still indeed currently rejecting God, but he's not finished. Not only does he quote to us from the Torah, you might look back to chapter 10. In chapter 10 already, he's, he's quoted for, for us from the Torah, but he's also quoted to us from the former prophets, from Samuel. And now he's going to quote to us from the Psalms. In doing so, he's going to quote for us King David. He quotes specifically from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is an individual lament. Let me encourage you to maybe spend some time this week reading it. It's an individual lament, most likely on behalf of of David. And David, at the very beginning of that lament, beginning in chapter 69, in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, David is lamenting that he himself is a sinner, that David has sinned against God. But David is not only asking for God's forgiveness toward him as it applies to him as an individual sinner, David, much like what he has done as we've seen throughout uh, the Psalms as the last two summers we've spent time in them, David is also asking for the Lord's justice in the current moment for God to act in the current as there, is a, there are a number of people who are uh, attacking David, who are pursuing King David, and he wants God's protection in that way. So look at Psalm 69, particularly as David quotes from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23 in our text this morning. Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. See what David is praying for, friends? David is praying that God might execute his judgment against those who do not believe. David is praying and asking God to execute his judgment against David's enemies. These aren't just David's enemies. These are ultimately the enemy of God. David is praying that God would execute his judgment against God's enemies. 
Verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Now notice how David quotes from the, that text here in Romans chapter 11, verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. David's already mentioned a stumbling block, if you might remember, chapter 9. Who is Israel's stumbling block? Or what is Israel's stumbling block? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Jesus is Israel's stumbling block. So listen what David's ultimately praying for. David is ultimately asking the same thing that Paul is asking in this text. For remember, Paul has argued all the way back to Romans chapter 4 that there has always only been one way to a right relationship with God. How is that? By faith. How did Father Abraham... How did Father Abraham... Walk with God. By faith. There is no change in God's economy in terms of the way in which He affects salvation. It has always been by faith. And so too, David is reminding us, has it always been a sign of judgment against those who have rejected God's means of covenantal faithfulness? If you reject Jesus, Jesus is that stumbling block upon which the nation of Israel has stumbled. They have rejected him as God's sole source of right relationship with God. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What David has asked God to do to his enemies, Paul here in this text says, God has done to the Jews who have rejected him. What David desires is the same thing that Moses communicated hundreds of years earlier is the same message of the gospel today. The message of the gospel today, friend, is if you reject Jesus as the only means of right relationship with God, you too, at this very moment, stand under God's righteous judgment. So this causes Paul to ask a natural question beginning in verse 11 and verse 12. We'll return to these verses somewhat next week as well as we look at 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. But it appears to me that in this text, at least in verses 11 and 12, Paul is not finished with a conversation 
on national Israel and national Israel's relationship ultimately to what he's going to get to next week in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, the Gentiles. So Paul, here in verse 11, raises this question. What next? Israel stands under God's judgment. Israel stands hardened by God. Those who have rejected Jesus stand under God's judgment. They are hardened. What next? Look how he answers the question, verse 11. Israel does not have to remain fallen. So I ask, did they actively stumble in order that they might actively fall? Look in your Bibles by comparison just real quick. Back to the very beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? How does Paul answer there? By no means. Come back to chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble? Did they actively stumble? Did they actively reject, in other words, God's messenger in the person of Jesus Christ so that, it, so that they might actively fall under God's condemnation? How does Paul answer it? With the same strong negation. By no means. God forbid. Absolutely not. So what's the problem? Notice the middle of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel what? Jealous. Now think back with me for a few moments to the book of Acts. If you've read the book of Acts and you've seen Paul's relationship in his missionary journeys, what often happens with Paul on his missionary journeys? Where's the first place Paul goes when he goes on a journey? To synagogue. And what happens when Paul goes to the synagogue? Who believes? Who gets run out of town? Paul. We could start in Acts chapter 13, and Paul with and Poseidon Antioch. We could go to chapter 19 with Paul's example in Ephesus. Oftentimes what happens, he preaches maybe for a Sunday or a Sabbath or a couple of Sabbaths, and the people engage, and then ultimately they, they get angry and they, they run him out of town, right? And what happens when the Jews get mad and run Paul out of town? To whom does he go to preaching then? Gentiles. And who comes to faith in Christ? Gentiles. Notice what Paul is arguing here. In God's divine economy, Israel's rejection of God is a means of grace to you 
and me. Israel's rejection of Jesus brings the gospel to my doorstep and to your doorstep. Look with me just real quickly as an example, and let's take chapter 18 and chapter 19 since they're so close together of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, and then we'll look quickly at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 18. Look at verse 4. Acts chapter 18, verse 4. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue. Who was in the synagogue? Jews. Maybe some believing Gentiles, primarily Jews. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your hands, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Look, just one chapter over. Acts chapter chapter 19. Look in verses 8 and 10. What does Paul do? Verse 8, he enters the synagogue and for three months. He speaks boldly, reasoning with them, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, when some who? When some Jews become stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrrhenius. This continued for two years so that the full, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. In God's divine economy, the Jews' rejection of Jesus leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul's initial response was to be an apostle to the Jews, but Paul becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. So what next? The rejection of Israel is good news for you and me. The rejection of Israel has bought salvation to the Gentiles. Yet, we've already seen in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, it's not the end of the story for the nation of Israel. God is not finished with him. Even though at this very moment, the Gentiles' relationship with God is causing jealousy among the Israelites. This seems to be one of Paul's major impetuses for writing the book of Romans. Paul is wanting to write the book of Romans to answer the question for the Israelites in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, the word of God has not fell to you. There's a sense among the Jews that God isn't being faithful to his word. And Paul is saying, no, God is incredibly faithful to his word. The problem is not with God. The problem is with the nation of Israel's rejection of the message of Christ. Israel does not have to remain fallen forever. Israel's rejection leads to Gentile inclusion. And notice how he concludes here in verse 12. Now, if their trespass... 
Whose trespass? Who is there? If the hardened Israelites trespass, if Israel, who has rejected Jesus, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How glorious, how marvelous, Paul is saying, will it be that the riches that the nation of Israel once rejected, they now believe and affirm and confess? You might remember the story of the prodigal son. This man, the story tells us, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 15, he has how many children? At least two boys. What do one of the boys want? Give me my riches now, right? Ultimately, what is this son doing? Is he accepting his daddy's message or is he rejecting his daddy's message? He rejects his daddy's message, and he goes out, and he spends time, a significant amount of time away from his father, and he squanders all of those marvelous riches that his daddy had given him. You remember the riches that the nation of Israel has acquired? Chapter 3, they've acquired the very oracles of God. Chapter 9, Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. The Israelites have received incredible, beautiful riches of Christ, of God, but what have they done? They've done the exact same thing that the one son in the parable of the prodigal son has done. They've trampled on the kindness and the goodness of a wonderful father. But what happens? Does the story end with the prodigal son's rejection or acceptance? He goes out. He realizes that he has erred. He realizes that he has messed up. He realizes that he has sinned. And he comes home, and his father sees him coming in. And what does his father say? Hey, we're going to have a party. We're going to rejoice for that which was lost is, is now found. And what happens to that other brother? Does he rejoice? Is he thankful? Is he gracious? Listen to the word of God in Luke chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, 
you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your lost brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This, my friends, is exactly what the Apostle Paul is arguing for here at the end of Romans chapter 11, verse 12. He's arguing that there is indeed coming a day when God and his goodness is going to bring back into the fold these Israelites who are going to believe by faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And when they do, how glorious and how marvelous and what a worthy cause of rejoicing. And so too, friends, is it the case when any lost sinner repents and trusts in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is great joy in heaven. Do you see the beauty of salvation? Do you see the awesomeness of salvation? Do you see the glory of salvation? Paul says there's a group of people They've desired to know God. They want to know God. They're just pursuing God by all the wrong means. Friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you too, like hardened Israel, are pursuing a right relationship with God through all the wrong means. Maybe the wrong means first was like the story of the prodigal son. You grew up in a home where the truth of of God was communicated, but you reached a point in your life where you felt like, you know what, I don't need this message. I can do better myself. I don't need a mom and a dad who, who stand in a position of authority in my life. I can, I can go out on my own. I'll do it myself. I'll figure, I will figure it out my way. Just give me what is mine, mom and dad, and I'm out of here. So you've tried to pursue God and find God in your own means. Perhaps You've tried to pursue God, but even participation in this corporate gathering. You've been to church numerous times in your life. You've heard this story of Christianity numerous times in your life. And yet you think that the right means of a right relationship by God with God is just doing something. Acting right. Following a certain set of rules. And you've done those. Perhaps you're here today, friend, and none of that is true. Perhaps you've just completely, totally rejected God. Might I plead with you for a moment?
that as it was for the prodigal son, as it is for nation, the nation of Israel, so too is it for you today, friend. As long as God in his kindness has extended to you his patience, in other words, as long as there is still breath in your lungs, you today can be made right with God. How? Hear not my words, hear the words of Scripture. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you cast yourself at his mercy today, realizing that apart from Christ, you can never have a right relationship with God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you have extended to us through the person of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible passage of Scripture. For Lord, your grace and your mercy are so clearly articulated. That, Lord, you're not finished with hardened sinners who have rejected you. But because of the work of Christ, your grace and your mercy continues to be extended to all, to all who by faith would believe. So Lord, we ask this morning that by your grace, indeed, you would cause us to believe. For the one person that might be here today that continues to reject God's message of grace, would you, Spirit of God, draw that person to faith in Christ? Would they hear the story of the gospel and believe? And for those of us who believe, Lord, would you grant to us the patience of Christ, the kindness of Christ in dealing with those within our sphere of influence, within our culture, within our community, within our workplaces, within our homes, who do not believe. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning, friend, and reflect on the preaching of God's Word? Have you trusted in Christ today? Have you obtained, have you failed to obtain salvation that God has offered the sending of His Son, Jesus? Would you stop living life aimlessly? Would you stop wandering in the wilderness like the nation of Israel? Would you trust today, now, at this moment, in God's sole, only source 
of covenantal faithfulness, Jesus. For those of us today who believe, this text yet again reminds us of Paul's passion for the gospel. Paul continues to rightly help us understand that there is only one way that people are made right with God, and that is through the gospel. Would you ask the Lord to grant to you the same passion the Apostle Paul has for the gospel? Would you ask him to renew in your own heart, in your own life, a passion for people knowing God? At this very moment, would you just pray for a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, an acquaintance that doesn't know Christ? A child, a grandchild, would you ask the Lord to save them? And lastly, would you rejoice in the hope? This same hope that Paul spoke of at the end of verse 12. The hope of the gospel that is so beautiful and worthy of celebrating. That shows the incredible grace of God when one lost sinner comes to faith in Christ. Thank God for salvation. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Friend, if you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. As we sing, please feel free to come uh, forward and, and one of us will be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to walk down and talk with one of us. There are plenty of people seated next to you in this room who would delight in sharing with you how you can have a right relationship with God. Maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you to pray that indeed God would continue his work in your life, that you might believe the gospel and be saved, or pray with you about a family member that you know is not living in a right relationship with God. We would delight during this time to shepherd your heart by praying with you. Or lastly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express an interest in being part of being a member at Woodlawn Baptist Church. Lord, as we respond to you now, might our response be pleasing. We pray this in Jesus' name.